Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Crever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here's your host, Dr. Brad Crever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America, our weekly examination of alcohol and the alcohol industry and the impact of alcohol upon ourselves, our economy, and our communities. Today, we'll be examining how colleges and universities and their host communities are grappling with alcohol. I'll be joined by two of my responsible retailing forum research colleagues, Dr. Joel Gruby and Shannon Adams, and two university partners, Dr. Michael Kerm of my University and Chuck Lester of Oklahoma State University to discuss a new initiative to promote alcohol responsibility and safe campus communities. But first, I'd like to spend a few minutes to describe the work that actually led us to this important initiative. Uh, the Responsible Retailing Forum has been researching underage sales and other compliance issues for almost 20 years now. And the challenge has always been, how do we prevent underage sales? And if an establishment has never trained its staff uh, in how to check IDs, to determine the authenticity of IDs, to skillfully uh, say no to someone... Well, we would expect underage sales to persist under those circumstances, but our work has included uh, engaging with some of the large national chains who have very, very explicit policies against selling to minors and additionally very explicit explicit punishments, typically instant termination, for anyone who violates that policy. But the sales to minors were persisting even in that kind of environment. Uh, a number of years ago, we received a substantial award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to study how a number of national chains were implementing changes in their responsible retailing policies that came about as a result of an initiative by 43 state attorneys general who had gone after these chains for sales to minors. Uh, and these chains were required to implement Implement what are called somewhat euphemistically assurances of voluntary compliance. Uh, they're not so voluntary. The alternative to voluntary compliance is to be taken to court. But these ABCs, as they're known, stipulated very specific process changes that these chains agreed to make. Each assurance was different with each chain, but they all addressed the processes that are involved in hiring and training and supervising staff who sell age-restricted products. And we did a major project with the ExxonMobil Corporation back at a time when they were still actually managing uh, Exxon and Mobil gas stations and convenience stores. Now, typically, they are all franchises. But uh, 15 years ago, they were corporate-owned and operated in many cases. And what we did was to interview um, people who were working as staffers in these convenience stores and gas stations, about 800 of them, and 200 managers. And half of them were from stores that had never, ever violated the sales to minors laws. And of course, the other half had. And we looked at a number of different issues. We looked at their attitudes. We looked at their knowledge. We looked at their beliefs. And what we found is that ExxonMobil had done a fabulous job of importing the actual information about when they had to check IDs, what was an acceptable ID, how to determine if the ID was valid. Um, and more than 95% of all those 800 people we interviewed understood exactly what to do. We asked about their attitudes. Uh, how conscientiously do you check IDs? And it was not surprising to us that they said well over 95% of the time, oh, I check IDs all the time. But what we also asked is, what about those other people who work with you? And we were sort of anticipating that individuals would say, well, I do a great job. You know, those bozos over there, they're not nearly so conscientious. But that's not what we found. They said that their colleagues who worked in these stores were just as committed as they were, that managers were just as committed as what they were, that ExxonMobil was doing this not to blow smoke, but that they were really committed. And we were just astonished at how well ExxonMobil had implemented these assurances of voluntary compliance. But then we looked at the compliance rates. And at the time these ABCs were executed by ExxonMobil, uh, 
mystery shoppers had entered the stores and tried to purchase, in this case, tobacco. And they found that at the beginning of these ABCs, 80% of the times clerks were correctly checking IDs, which means one out of five times a strange young customer came into a store and wasn't even asked for an ID when he tried to buy an age-restricted product. Three months later, after the ABC had been in effect, the compliance rate went from 80% to 60%. It had dropped 20 percentage points. And it turned out every three months as this data was taken, it would go up and down between 60 to 80, 85 percent down again. Very, very variable. And at much, much lower rates of ID checking than anyone had expected. And this was really disturbing. And looking at this from a management point of view, what do you do in the face of this? Train people more? Well, our survey showed that people were already really well trained. They knew exactly what they were supposed to do. Uh, Punish them if they don't follow the policy. Well, the policy was already termination. So how do you change that? So it was really perplexing. But what we came to realize is that although they were well trained and committed, the staff were victims of simple inattention that the job in a convenience store, and this would be true in a liquor store, a package store, it's very repetitive work. You swipe the product, you bag it, you swipe your bag, and your mind wanders. And it's either you're daydreaming or you're multitasking or something that it's inattention. And so that underage sales really comes about in many cases the same way that an accident occurs in an industrial facility. It's just the mind wanders and it's inattention. So if the underlying problem is inattention, how do you combat it? And mystery shops had been used uh, to send in uh, people to attempt to purchase as a way of observing how effective something was. In this case, mystery shops were used to determine how effective the training was. But we recognize that if the problem is inattention, what if we took those mystery shop reports by young legal age people and provide direct feedback to the people who are selling at the at the front line, provide feedback to managers and to supervisors at a higher level, became a kind of intervention. So starting in 2004, Responsible Retailing Forum has been working on developing uh, underage sales prevention model that's based entirely upon these mystery shops. We would send in someone who is of legal age, 21 to 24 years old, and attempt to purchase, in this case, alcohol. And if the staff didn't ask for an ID, even though that person was well under the age that should trigger an ID inspection, it was a violation of store policy. No one was happy, but there was no legal violation of law. There was no actual risk involved. Uh, So the managers really liked it because this was educational rather than just punitive as with compliance checks. And we'd send follow-up letters to the managers and we visited places and we found that the managers would take these follow-up letters announcing the results and they'd show it to all the people who worked in their place. And they'd say, so you see, this is why you need to check IDs all the time. And all the managers saw this program as a great intervention for clerks and servers to be sure that they're checking IDs. Um, well, it's, that's all true, but it was actually an intervention for managers whose responsibility is to remind their staff on a continual basis of the importance of checking IDs. So the managers like it. The local police liked it because we were preparing licensees on how to pass inspections. Um, licensed commissions like this. Everyone who was involved in our pilot sites thought it was terrific. But of course, we had no evidence whether it was actually making a difference. So we uh, applied for and received a Small Business Innovation Research Award from the National Institutes of Health to develop and validate this mystery shopper model. And so I'd like to introduce now my colleague, Dr. Joel Gruby of the Prevention Research Center of the Pacific Institute of Research and Evaluation. And Joel directed the evaluation of our ID checking model. Hello, Joel. Hi, Brad. How are you this morning? Excellent. Excellent. For me, it's not this morning, though. I'm in Boston. You're in California. Could you describe your work and the work of the Prevention Research Center? Sure, sure. Thanks, uh, by the way, for inviting me to participate in this, uh, uh, the Alcohol Across America. This is uh, very good. Uh, I'm a senior research scientist at the Prevention Research Center in Oakland, California. Uh, Our center is... Uh, one of the national research centers funded by uh, NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. 
And it, we're the only one of their centers, by the way, that focuses on prevention of alcohol problems. We generally take uh, an environmental perspective. Uh, that is, we try to figure out how the physical and social environments uh, in which drinking take place, takes place uh, affects problems in consumption. Uh, my own research largely looks at underage drinking and drinking problems. So uh, in addition to the work that I've done with the forum, I've been involved in uh, several large uh, randomized trials that investigate um, you know, community-level interventions that are designed to reduce underage access mm-hmm. to alcohol and consequently drinking and mm-hmm. drinking problems. Joel, could you describe what we knew about the effective re- effectiveness of mystery shops before our own research? Right. Um, actually, before uh, we undertook the uh, the study you were talking about, the trial, the NIAAA-funded trial, we had really not a lot of solid evidence for the effectiveness of these interventions uh, in the sense of, um, you know, being randomized trial kinds of evidence. Uh, there were a number of studies that had been conducted, including my own, uh, that included mystery shops as a part of interventions, but these were kind of broad interventions and might have also included compliance checks, other enforcement, media, education, and so on. Um, in all of these studies, we've seen improvements in ID checking by participating outlets, uh, but the fact that they're multi-component studies makes it really difficult to attribute those improvements to the mystery shop interventions themselves. Um, in addition to those kinds of studies, uh, probably the best evidence we have comes from a series of case studies uh, of mystery shop interventions that were conducted by the uh, Responsible Retailing Forum. Um, and for example, uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin. And so, Joel, under the SBIR award, we had an opportunity to do a 16 community four state trial where we had uh, Pairs of demographically matched communities, two pairs each in California, Texas, Wisconsin, and Massachusetts. Um, And we implemented the program in one community while the other served as a control. Could you describe what the uh, research approach and and data analysis plan was for the study? Okay. Well, the research approach um, was a random – it's a randomized trial. Um, and we used a crossover design where we um, assigned uh, outlets or communities, actually, um, to receive either an early intervention um, or to receive the intervention six months later, a delayed intervention. Um, and much like the previous uh, studies on, on the mystery shops, the measures of the outcome measures we were looking at were staff ID checking behavior. We collected those data during the baseline and early intervention periods, and then uh, also, again, during the delayed intervention period. Um, During the delayed intervention period, uh, we only obtained these measures for the outlets in the delayed communities. Mm -hmm. And what did we learn? Well, uh, okay, the analysis, uh, fairly complicated set of analyses here, Brad, because the Outlets are nested within communities which are nested, uh, or excuse me, observations are nested within community, within outlets, outlets within communities, communities within states. Uh, and so we needed to take all of that into account in the analysis, which uh, basically was a three-level fixed effects hierarchical logistic regression uh, with the repeated observations at level one, uh, the communities. Uh, outlets rather at level two and communities at level three. We included a what's called a time varying dummy variable that represented the intervention, uh, and that was included at level one. The um, variable was coded as zero for the early and delayed groups during the baseline, uh, one for the early intervention group, and zero for the delayed intervention group during the initial intervention period, and then one for the delayed group at the delayed intervention period. And, and John, um, uh, I had asked you to go into this kind of detail to describe the data analysis plan, in large part so uh, our listeners will uh, appreciate how stupid I feel every time you explain the data analysis plan. Uh, but also to, to sort of flag that um, 
People like myself throughout the country are working in public health and prevention, and we're relying upon evidence-based research. And I just wanted people to get a feel of what that evidence actually is. It's very, very sophisticated. And the NIH has been spending our taxpayers' dollars very, very wisely. We're going to take a short break right now, and uh, then I'll ask Joel to talk about uh, what the results were and how we're applying this now to colleges when I introduce Shannon Adams as well. This is Brad Crever for Alcohol Across America. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. We're with Joel Gerbery of the Prevention Research Center, and Joel was about to tell us what we learned in this uh, field effectiveness study of mystery shoppers. Joel? Okay. Well, what we learned is that the intervention basically was associated with about a two-fold increase in the odds of checking IDs. So, for example, the ID checking rate in the early intervention group increased from an average of about 80% during the baseline uh, to 90% during the initial intervention period, and it achieved a 95% rate uh, by the end of the earlier intervention phase. Uh, in the delayed intervention group, we saw a very similar pattern. Uh, the rate of ID checking increased from about 80% to 88%, uh, with a peak of 94% at the end of that phase. So, in, in essence, the, we have very good evidence uh, now in a randomized trial that um, these interventions work and improve ID checking behaviors. One other thing we did, Brad, that I'll, I'll just mention quickly is we were also interested in the difference between on-premises and off-premises outlets uh, because we thought there might be a difference in how well they responded to the program. Uh, but what we found, in fact, was that both types of outlets increased ID checking rates during the intervention period, with each achieving about 93 to 95% pass rates by the end of the program. Thank you, Joel. And um, 
I hope you'll stick around because I'll want to ask you some more questions uh, towards the end of the program. One other thing we learned, uh, but just very anecdotally, is that many of the licensees would uh, come up to us and say, you know, we're really glad to be doing this work with you. We think it's important to prevent underage sales. But then they'd say in a very kind of surreptitious way so no one overheard them, you know, our biggest problem is in underage sales. Our biggest problem is what they said was intoxicated customers. Now, if you ask the same question to law enforcement or licensing, they say the problem is over-service uh, as opposed to over-consumption. Over-service is the unlawful serving of someone who's already clearly impaired. And so uh, as a result of this anecdotal information we were receiving, uh, the Responsible Retailing Forum has been developing a similar mystery shopper program for over-service in which we use pseudo-intoxicated mystery shoppers who attempt to purchase or be served alcohol while exhibiting, exhibiting signs of very obvious, distinct intoxication. And it's part of the work we're doing now in colleges. Uh, uh, in, 19, in 2016, RR Forum joined with the International Town and Gown Association to develop an alcohol responsibility program involving six ITGA member communities. Joining me now to describe this initiative is Shannon Adams, RR Forum's Director of Stakeholder Relations. Hello, Shannon. Hello, Brad. Hello. So my first question, Shannon, is uh, it says something important about our field that we need a director of stakeholder relations, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really does, Brad, because community-wide compliance with alcohol sales laws is just so important to the work that we do, but also so important to the entire community that wants to have a safer community. So it really does take a village to accomplish what communities need to ensure safer communities regarding alcohol policies, alcohol sales policies, server training, and just overall compliance. Mm -hmm. So and we've been working in communities across the country for many years, and our community stakeholders really in both variety and number continue to grow. Mm -hmm. We generally begin working uh, you know, with a working group already committed to tackling community alcohol issues, and we build from there. So we've learned a lot from them as we move into new communities. Mm -hmm. We're able to apply that to each new community. So we've always reached out to city officials, uh, local alcohol licensing boards, and state regulators, and certainly the college and university representatives, including a lot of their departments, the residence halls, student affairs, campus safety, even Greek life, and often students themselves. Uh, we really have had a lot of pretty impressive students and many thoughtful suggestions come from them, but we also try to include some uh, stakeholders that we hadn't considered in earlier work, like local parent groups, uh, neighborhood associations, sometimes even media representatives who join the effort not to cover the story, but to be part of the story or part of the solution. And that was new to us, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, Chamber of Commerce looking to support their local businesses. Even faith-based organizations are often great support for the community's efforts. And, of course, the retailers and their industry partners and health and prevention professionals are always included in everything we do as well. Um, so, really, every community looks very different in its stakeholder makeup, but all are important to the success of the community effort as a whole, you know, not just to be aware of what's going on in the community, but to put their knowledge and experience to work towards that safer community that we're all looking for. But, anyway, these Sh people really become great teams and uh, toward real community-wide clients, and we're always happy to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Shannon, would you describe the Alcohol Responsibility Program and the six pilot sites? Sure, sure. Um, the Alcohol Responsibility Program is based on RR Forum's Community Responsibility Model, which is a model that recognizes that alcohol responsibility has a component for both individual licensees and the entire community. Um, we've learned that every community is different, and it really is important to identify the needs and challenges of each community by developing communication and cooperation among counting down stakeholders, licensee trade associations, and their industry partners. So as we've implemented the Alcohol Responsibility Program in the 2016-17 academic year, six international counting down association members are piloting the project with us. And those campuses are Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, California, University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, uh, Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, Oklahoma, Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, and University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. 
And, and what they are, are all components? working very closely with us to build successful community-wide programs. And an important component of the program is the use of mystery shops, which we talked about a little bit. So, so first, we conduct ID-checking mystery shops of a random sampling of retailers and serving establishments with confidential feedback to those inspected. They will only, they're the only ones who, re- who receive the results. And next, we conduct pseudo-intoxicated mystery shops, which are visits by actors exhibiting signs of obvious intoxication. Again, individual results are confidential. Then the licensees are encouraged to have their staff take a short online interactive training on recognizing and skillfully refusing service to obviously impaired customers. And then following those, those shops up, we communicate with licensees and other community stakeholders on a very regular basis, offering not only the mystery shop reports, but also we assist the community in building their best alcohol sales practices, mm-hmm. which includes some suggestions on advice, on what to do if you detect a fake ID or if a server is faced with an intoxicated customer who may need a ride home or simply knowing when to call for assistance from law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So again, this and allows me, those stakeholders. Yes, go ahead. I just wanted to amplify that, Shannon, that typically what happens is you have 100 licensees in a community and each individual licensee has to determine on his own, how do I deal with this issue? What do I do if I, I see a fake ID? What do I do if there's an intoxicated customer? And to be able to provide guidance for the entire community, to create basically a system for the entire community that 100 different licensees can participate in is much more effective than asking 100 individual licensees to come up with their own system. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But again, and, so building, that's why building these stakeholder groups is so important because it allows each one of the stakeholders to talk with each other to determine the best ways to handle those alcohol issues. And we get to explore then the community specific information for alcohol retailers, such as local server training opportunities and other resources available to them as well. So keeping mm-hmm. them talking and working together on a regular basis has just been so important to this program. Thank you. And Shannon, I'd now like to ask one of our partners in this effort, uh, Chuck Lester of Oklahoma State University, to join our conversation. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Brad. Hi, Shannon. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Chuck, what, what is the drinking culture in big Division I college communities like Stillwater, Oklahoma? Well, I mean, I think that the NIH has uh, said a lot about drinking culture in general at colleges. Sixty uh, percent of college students uh, report drinking in the past month. Two out of three of those have engaged in binge drinking during that same time frame. So when you start to talk about big D1 schools, the issue really becomes scale. Um, in, a, in Stillwater, we have about 24,000, almost 25,000 students on campus in a community of 45,000. So if you go by the NIH's numbers, um, at any given time, you've got about a quarter of your population, almost 10,000 people who are engaging in binge drinking over the course of a month. Um, That becomes a a pretty large concern um, as far as community relations go and um, student performance, obviously. Um, Those kinds of things are... Um, paramount to the sort of town-gown relationship that has to take place um, in college towns like Stillwater. Wow. That's a jolting way of expressing the degree of uh, serious drinking. Chuck, what is your role in all this? So I come at this from the point of view of a a public health, I guess, a prevention specialist. Um, I run a a grant that seeks to create these community coalitions um, to look at different uh, issues in the community. So um, the initial sort of drive of ours was to look at ways to possibly prevent or curtail underage drinking in Payne County, which is where um, OSU Stillwater is. Um, So... I work with a group of community stakeholders um, that are sort of spread across the community. That We do have a, a very positive and, and strong participation from the university, several well-placed folks who are very concerned and, and trying to make a positive difference. And essentially, uh, that coalition will then look at the data that exists, our local data, and try and make some decisions and uh, identify some um, interventions that might work and be culturally competent for us um, and, and get those implemented. Mm-hmm. Stillwater has very frequent law compliance checks to enforce the age 21 legal purchase age, as do many major college campuses. And so it's no 
surprise to us that licensees check IDs fairly regularly. Could you describe what happened when we conducted our regular mystery shop program that Shannon described before? And then what happened when we tried to determine just how carefully that the IDs are being checked? Absolutely. It was, uh, I mean, kind of an eye-opener. As you described, um, our licensees are are pretty well-versed in the idea that people are watching. So, um, and and also, I should say, they, they, generally speaking, try and do the right thing anyway. But the, the actual act of asking for an ID, having it pulled from a, a wallet and having the door person hold it um, and look at it is very common. Um, it's, it's widely practiced and for all the reasons that you mentioned previous. Um, and so our first round of mystery shops sort of backed up what we already knew, especially places that use door people, that that's kind of their job is to check IDs before people came in. Uh, we had about a 92% pass rate, um, which is, you know, not as good as it could be. It could be perfect, but it was pretty good. We know that we have people in the community who are running these establishments who are at least asking for an ID. Um, but, but then, <laughs> but then, exactly, um, um, the other side of the story or the rest of the story is we uh, were able to, through our partnership, again, through the community coalition, we were able to borrow some IDs from Stillwater PD. Um, and then we had the mystery shoppers. So the same idea. It wasn't intended to be punitive. Um, these were folks who were over 21 years of age. They were legal to go in, but they were carrying IDs that were borrowed. And in fact, the ones that we ended up using first, because I was fairly confident that we were going to get some IDs confiscated or whatever through the course of the mystery shop evening, um, they were expired. So not only did they not belong to the people who had them, but they were expired in one case for over a year. Um, And our rate looked much different than it did before. In fact, only four of the 25 places that we went um, caught the fact that these weren't the people um, that they said they were. They, they, in fact, they were checked at the door, and then I also uh, had them go to the bar and try and order a drink. And in, in all but four cases, they were able to do both of those things. Mm-hmm. And Shannon had mentioned that we've also been sending in actors, pseudo-intoxicated mystery shoppers, uh, to determine whether there was over-service. What did you learn in Stillwater? Um, pretty, pretty much exactly the same thing. I, we knew on that piece um, that that was likely to be more prevalent, and, and certainly uh, we did, especially among the cohort of the uh, pilot project schools, we did okay, but certainly nowhere near where you'd like to see. I mean, it's, it's a little alarming um, that somebody, and, and having watched them happen, um, these are, are fairly obvious clues that somebody should be picking up, um, that, that these folks shouldn't be served. Um, and they consistently kind of are. The data that uh, Chuck is referring to is that we conducted these pseudo-intoxicated mystery shops at four of the pilot sites. And the rate at which um, licensees offered to serve a clearly intoxicated person was just about 90%. Very, very jarring. Very, very chilling. Uh, Chuck, uh, stay with me. We'll be uh, joined in a few minutes by Mike Kerm of um, University, Miami University in Oxford. But first, we're going to take a short break. This is Brad Krever of Alcohol Across America. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. 
In this fast-paced, technologically driven world of business, the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Geller. We will discuss ways to transform roadblocking emotions using mindful-based tools you can incorporate into your business and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. This is Brad Kriver of Alcohol Across America, and we're now bringing in our final guest, Dr. Michael Kerm, who's the Dean of Students at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Hello, Mike. Hello, Brad. How similar is the drinking culture in Oxford to what Chuck was describing about Stillwater? Oxford's different from, and Miami University are different from Stillwater in part because the Miami University student population approximately doubles the size of the permanent residents in Oxford. So we're a small town. So we're a small town, and that size in our geography actually plays a role in the differences across the community. Of course, there are similarities that are predictable for everyone on the call today. Students enter Miami largely as non-drinkers. This reduces over time as they spend time on campus. We have binge drinking issues just as Chuck and the other schools in ARP do. Um, The similarity um, that I see with Chuck, particularly with respect to the ARP program, is that we expected and the tests confirmed that our permit holders do a good job of checking IDs. Now, after we looked at those results and we then looked at them against the observation that we have that the peculiar nature of Oxford geography is that one block off of campus uh, puts you into the uptown business district in Oxford where just because of geography, the two largest density undergraduate drinking establishments exist across the street from each other. And this is a highly visible focal point for drinking in the community. And in fact, the data that we have locally suggests that a high proportion of Miami first-year students actually consume in bars, which was a little paradoxical because we thought that our permit holders were checking IDs, and in fact, this was confirmed, but this raised an issue that probably most schools experience, but maybe more acute in Miami, and that is the prevalence of very high-quality fake IDs. Mike, I don't even call them fake IDs anymore. Uh, They're IDs that pass muster in terms of uh, electronic scanning devices in many cases. They're simply not authentic. They don't actually belong to that person. They've certainly changed a great deal over the past handful of years. Much of alcohol... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, they certainly have. uh, And I would say that in our experience with Oxford PD and MUPD that very closely cooperate in our efforts to reduce high-risk consumption, there are high-quality fake IDs that can't be identified by some of our best police uh, uh, staff members except by calling them in. Mm -hmm. 
Much of alcohol responsibility takes place at the level of individual licensees who sell and serve alcohol. And Chuck works with them. I know he teaches RBS, Responsible Beverage Service Training, uh, to those licensees. And we work with individual students who've abused alcohol. Uh, How do these same problems look to you at the level of the entire university? We see these issues at our university, and the point that we're emphasizing at our university is that as we try to reduce high-risk consumption and the negative consequences of high-risk consumption, it's important, as Shannon pointed out earlier, we have to have everyone at the table, and that's clearly one of the significant benefits of the ARP program that we went through and the other schools went through is that to get the permit holders at the table, we have the city at the table and the university at the table, that is critical in our efforts because high-risk alcohol consumption is not a Miami University issue, it's not a college issue, it's a community issue, and we need to address it as a community. And in fact, Importantly, we also need to engage the students in this in a significant way. And that's really a point of emphasis for us right now. The students need to know why we care about this issue, and they need to be partners in helping us come up with ways to intervene and reduce high-risk consumption. And Mike, what about the other stakeholder constituency that's really a part of this, but not actually present on campus with you? And I'm referring to the parents. Uh, I learned the Latin term in loco parentis when I went to college. But you're sort of in place of the parents. What about them? Indeed. And research shows, and parents are surprised when you point this out to them, that parents continue to have an influence on the decisions that their college-age students make that extend, I would argue, beyond what university educational efforts can accomplish. So at Miami, we have a parent office, and we have really ramped up our connection to parents in the last two years, largely through live webinars that get taped that parents can, can then access whenever they would like, and also videos that parents contribute to the production of these videos that help to give parents tips about how to talk to their loved ones about consumption of alcohol and high-risk alcohol use. We consider to be parents a, a very critical ally in our efforts, as you pointed out. One thing I learned uh, in my visits with Chuck Lester at Oklahoma State University is that uh, the students there are often much more frightened about what the university might do than what the city of Stillwater might do if there's some sort of infraction of law. Um, Is that true in Oxford, and and how do you use that power? That is, uh, I think believed to be a universal truth without precise empirical validation. Uh, it's Everyone agrees that that's true. The police agree that that's true. And the way in which um, this impacts our efforts, I would just quickly say a couple of things on that. One is we have what I would consider to be a fairly standard um, school judicial policy as it relates to alcohol use, and that is we have two types of alcohol violations, effectively a major and a minor. And if you have two major violations, you're suspended. Of course, as educators, we don't look at this as punitive. We believe that if somebody has two infractions of a major type, that they're not benefiting to the greatest extent from their time on campus and they need some time away. If you have three of any violation, you're suspended. And of course, students don't want their time on campus interrupted. And then recently, what we've done that relates back to the visibility of the drinking issue is there's a residential community that uh, surrounds the Uptown Business District. This is almost exclusively student rentals now. And the students have highly visible front yard house parties, which help to distort the drinking norm that other students perceive and also has a negative impact on the way that visitors and the community view Oxford and Miami University. And so we've developed a good neighbor program where now if these large visible house parties are violating local ordinances related to noise or litter, we obtain those citations 
and that after three violations of litter or noise, students end up being called in, into account at the student judicial office. And we meet with them, by the way, at the second violation so we can talk about our expectations, and they always talk about the fact that they would like to avoid our judicial office. Mike, do you have any sense, uh, anecdotal or actually based on evidence, as to whether the drinking culture uh, and alcohol problems has an impact upon applications to the school? That's an extremely difficult thing to try to test empirically, but it's something that if we could actually test, we would want to test because what we, we act as if that's the case. And we realize that if visitors have a distorted impression, and clearly this is distorted because the, the visibility of the behaviors around the Uptown District do not represent the typical Miami student. We do know that most of our Miami students either don't drink or drink in a safe and smart way. And there is a concern that if the visibility to outside visitors who are trying to select a campus for their student observe the behaviors that it could create a not a virtuous cycle in terms of the type of student that we attract here. And we have a president who is very much on board with wanting to make this a place where alcohol does not interfere with the student's ability to accomplish the things they came here uh, to do. And we're going to be uh, trying to reinforce that message, even if we can't uh, empirically validate our expectation about this with the way we communicate in other ways to prospective students. Mike, the Responsible Retailing Forum was first created uh, when I was at Brandeis University, and our partners at that time were Florida State University. And Florida State University had a reputation of being one of the leading party schools in the country. And the university was none too pleased about that. Uh, and a lot of effort has gone in to try to get away from that reputation. Um, one of the things I've heard uh, over the past couple of years in working with colleges is Title IX is connected to alcohol in ways I really hadn't understood. Could you describe that to us, Mike? Let me offer this perspective on that, Brad. And we've examined our own environment pretty closely. And what I'm about to describe is sort of a combination between the Miami University experience and colleges more generally. Because as you know, um, the It's On Us initiative has really moved campuses toward measuring sexual and interpersonal violence. And of course, there is an overlap between sexual and interpersonal violence and alcohol. And, and the big way that we see this overlap um, nationally and locally is that incidents of sexual and interpersonal violence very frequently occur between people who know each other, romantic partners, former romantic partners, acquaintances, and friends. Uh, is up to up to eighty percent of the incidents linked back to people who know each other, and they originate in environments where alcohol is present, even if alcohol isn't being used by those involved in the incident. And so, what that means is, where these things are originating would be at a house party or at a bar where we have students who are out with friends. They're feeling comfortable with their friends. Their friends have their networks there. So in their surroundings, they're surrounded by people they feel comfortable with, their friends and their friends' networks. And so this sense of safety and security then uh, becomes a place where a perpetrator, and by the way, Alcohol plays a huge role in perpetration because uh, something like three-quarters or higher of perpetrators will have been consuming alcohol. So perpetrators will have been using alcohol themselves, so it may, again, be originating at a bar. And perpetrators will be using alcohol to disarm potential victims. So the role of alcohol is important in sexual and interpersonal violence. And because of that, because of that connection, it has a critical link back to bars and house parties off campus. Mm -hmm. Mike, I'd like to ask you and then ask Chuck as well. Um, what are the problems and the concerns relating to these issues of alcohol that keep you up at night? Well, Chuck, let me start briefly on that. And 
Brad, when I uh, when I started this job, I used to go to sleep at night listening to the traffic album John Barleycorn Must Die. And my uh, perspective has actually changed a little bit about that. I don't think we're going to get rid of alcohol, certainly on college campuses. That's not what our strategy is. It's to reduce the risks associated with this high-risk consumption. And what I'm finding is the thing that keeps me up at night is the binge drinking measure is obsolete. If all of our students, in spite of the health risks, stop drinking at four or five drinks in a session, our job and the things that we respond to would probably be increased by, be decreased by more than half. We're increasingly finding that the very significant problems are occurring at the double binge level, the extreme level, the eight or 10 drinks in a session. And we're starting to measure that at Miami. Uh, and I know in one of your recent shows, you talked about the prevention paradox. And I think there's actually some more attention that we want to pay to the marginal negative consequences, which really rise significantly when you move from a drink binge drinking level to an extreme or double binge drinking level. And that keeps me up at night because the things that can happen there when somebody blacks out or somebody has become so impaired after eight or 10 drinks, those are the extremely significant consequences. And I actually don't think we should be treating all consequences equally. Mm -hmm. And Chuck, you are also toiling in the vineyards of the Lord and working in these issues. What are the problems (laughs) and concerns that, you know, just plague you? I mean, you know, it's, I guess it's probably a little uh, trite, but it really does come down to the fact that these, without trying to be overly dramatic, are life and death issues. I mean, we can we can talk about retention, and that's, that's a concern. We can talk about wanting to create a, a strong community, and, and that's something that we all want. But at the end of the day, um, what it really comes down to is you want somebody to be able to live past their experience. And uh, we know it happens. It doesn't happen frequently, and I don't want to be a chicken little, the sky is falling kind of person, but it, as far as the things that keep me up at night, it, it's certainly that piece of it. Um, and it, it, it doesn't just come down to the actual mortality. Um, you can uh, ruin a life just as easily with all sorts of other things that can happen with alcohol-related um, issues, especially I think Mike brings up a good point. Um, you know, it's one thing to, to binge, but when you really get to the, the point where you're an extreme binge drinker, drinking a case of beer or whatever, um, and, and invite alcohol use disorder and, and whatnot, then that's not a life well lived. So mm-hmm. um, if you're asking the question of what keeps me up at night, it'd, it'd be those sorts of, of bigger, more extreme consequences. And Joel Gruby, you've uh, been involved with these issues uh, as a college <laughs> a student and graduate student, as a parent, and, and of course as a researcher. Are the problems of college drinking and alcohol abuse intractable? Are these always going to be with us? And, and how much do you think we can reasonably hope to accomplish? You don't ask easy questions, do you? No. <laughs> I, I don't think they're intractable. Um, I mean, we know uh, from experience and uh, research has gone on that there are certain things that you can do in college communities to reduce the harm associated with drinking. Um, one of my colleagues, Bob Saltz, for example, um, you know, he's been studying college drinking and prevention of drinking problems in university communities for years. And he's found that... Uh, you know, for example, if you uh, intervene with these multi-level, multi-component kinds of interventions that that might, you know, include the mystery shop kind of stuff, but maybe enforcement of social host laws, um, those sorts of things, that you can actually put a put a pretty good dent in uh, college drinking. The, Thank you, Joe. I, I, Joe, I'm sorry. Thank you, and uh, thank you, Shannon and Chuck and Mike. Um, If you're interested in exploring these alcohol responsibility programs we've been developing for your community or learning more about this work, uh, please contact us through the Responsible Retailing Forum's website, www.rrforum.org. This is Brad Crever for Alcohol Across America. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. 
Please join Dr. Brad Crever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.